You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, we're kicking off a brand new series all about John the Baptist. Pastor Tom Wood will get us started with a message covering John the Baptist in the Old Testament. Let's check it out. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be able to come and be here with you. And I wanted to let you know that um, there's uh, something I started a number of years ago with the kids, specifically the boys, is that if ever it was the night before a big game, typically a soccer game, um, I always felt uncomfortable praying with the boys that Chelsea would win. Um, I don't know why I had such a difficult time with it, but I felt that if we pray that no one gets injured, like that's in line with kingdom values, you know what I'm saying? But after last night, I've had a change of theology, and I'm calling upon all Yankees fans to go into a season of fasting and prayer for this postseason, y'all. We're going to be starting a new season on John the Baptist, and this, uh, this idea, this series, it really came about maybe a month or so ago. It really kind of dawned on me that, uh, you know, I've been in church for a long time, listened to a lot of messages, I've shared a lot of messages, and I couldn't think of a single time I'd ever heard of a sermon on John the Baptist. And so there's this key biblical figure, someone that's a big deal in the Bible. All four gospel writers talk about John the Baptist significantly, and yet I've never heard a sermon on it. So that kind of got the wheels turning, and so we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the life and death of John the Baptist true biblical hero. And the verse that I want to use to kick this off is from Luke 7. This is Jesus talking. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Of all the people who've ever lived, of all the people, no one is better than John the Baptist. That's what we just read from Jesus. So who is this man that Jesus described as the greatest person who's ever lived? A quick overview of the life of John, and of course, as we go through the series, we'll unpack this more and more. Next week, we're going to look at the birth and the circumstances around the birth of John the Baptist. But it's important to note as we get going that Jesus' mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth are related, meaning that Jesus and John are related, probably some kind of cousin. John was born only a few months before Jesus in miraculous circumstances. John had a unique mission to preach repentance and about the coming day of the Lord to the people around the Judean wilderness. It appears that John completed a lot of his ministry at the Jordan River, which is about a day's journey from the temple in Jerusalem. And there he would preach and baptize people with water. At the River Jordan, John and his disciples would ceremonially immerse people in water to show spiritual renewal. And despite being somewhat of an unusual man hanging out in the desert, he gathered a crowd. People sought him out, including some of the religious leaders and influential people of the time. He even recruited some people to be his disciples that would faithfully follow him, learn from him, and expect to minister in a similar way. And one day Jesus came to the River Jordan and asked John to baptize him. And as Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And the Father spoke and gave his approval and affirmation of Jesus the Son. This moment would launch Jesus' public ministry, and Jesus would begin teaching about the kingdom of God, the need for repentance, preaching his message of love, and he began performing all kinds of miracles. After Jesus' baptism, John continued his mission, continued confronting sin, specifically of King Herod. And then King Herod, for his trouble, put John in prison. Tragically for John, it was while in jail that Herod had him killed as a prisoner. We're certainly going to look at all of this in a lot more detail in the next few weeks. 
But the best place for us to start this series, looking at the life and death of John the Baptist, is to go back to the Old Testament. It's incredible to me that John the Baptist is spoken about in the Scriptures hundreds of years before he was even born. There are three passages specifically that point to John directly. These three passages are quoted by the gospel authors. They tell us about John, who he is, and what his mission was. So that's where we're going to start the series, is John the Baptist in the Old Testament. And there's some important background and context that we should keep in mind as we consider all this today. It's helpful to recognize how John fits into the larger story of the Bible. Now, the Bible that you and I have today that we value and that we believe is inspired by God and is a gift from Him to us. In that Bible, there are over 40 different authors that God uniquely inspired to write and record how He is at work in human history and how we are to relate to Him. Among those authors, you'll find kings, shepherds, priests, prisoners, historians, doctors, fishermen, and even murderers. And there are numerous genres and styles of the different books of the Bible. There's historical records, there's short parables, there's long epic stories, there's songs and poetry, there's symbolic imagery, there's even personal letters from pastors to churches. And amazingly, all of this works together to form this unique God-inspired library of writings that God uses to reveal Himself. The Bible reveals God's character and nature. It shows His motives and His passion. It reminds us of His power and His holiness. It's within the writings of the Bible that we see God's promises to humanity, the promise to restore and redeem us from the brokenness of the world, the promise to deal with the tragic consequences of sin that people who are distant and removed from God can have a healed and whole eternal relationship with Him. This is the story and the promise of the Bible. And the Bible is many of us will know, is split into two portions. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is approximately three quarters of the Bible. And it records God's relationship with humanity, specifically the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. The Old Testament was written over a very long period of time. It was over a thousand years that Moses, the oldest author of the Bible, fast forward over a thousand years to Malachi, the last author of the Bible, wrote his book. And the New Testament begins at the birth of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God who would go to the cross so that all who put their faith and trust in Him could find forgiveness and reconcile with God. We learn from the New Testament that the Old Testament exists so we can have a full understanding of the importance of Jesus. It's the Old Testament that leads us to Jesus by showing us our need for a Savior. It's the Old Testament that helps us understand the severity of sin. It's the Old Testament that shows our need for a Savior by reminding us and teaching us the love and the mercy and the goodness of God. It's the Old Testament that sets the stage by teaching us this is the holiness and the perfection of God. So that when we're done with the Old Testament, the only conclusion we can come to is we need a Savior. We need someone that is going to fix this up for us. I saw a book recently, I'm going to confess, I haven't read it yet, but it's by a guy called David Murray called Jesus on Every Page, and it's an overview of the Old Testament. But even though I haven't read the book, I love that sentiment, Jesus on Every Page, which sums up perfectly the Old Testament and the role of the Old Testament. If you follow the story of the Bible chronologically, it's towards the end of the Old Testament that the prophets start declaring the importance of an event or a moment that they describe as the day of the Lord. And when the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord, it's difficult to define and we're certainly not given all the details. It's the promise that God will once and for all fix the brokenness in the world, that His justice and judgment will come and sin will be defeated and those who have been faithful to Him will stand victorious. 
It's this promise of the day of the Lord that cemented the promise of a Messiah in the Jewish mindset, that God would send one special person to lead the charge. Fast forward to the time of Jesus, and we see that people's hopes around the Messiah and the day of the Lord were wrapped up in being liberated from the Roman Empire. Consequently, the Jewish people were anticipating a military warrior. And if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you'll know that as the Messiah, he defeated the power of sin and death, which is infinitely more devastating than any political power. But by the time of Jesus, the anticipation of the day of the Lord had been a staple part of the Jewish mindset and their faith for hundreds of years. And as we could expect it, drove fear into the hearts of people. Along with the Messiah's arrival comes God's judgment and God's justice. And one thing we can be sure of, God's judgment will always be correct because he is fair and he knows everything. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all very aware of our own shortcomings. We all have regrets and things we wish we'd never done. So this promise of judgment typically fills people with unease and dread. The question of whether someone will be counted among the righteous or the wicked is normally racked with guilt and shame and terror. The question of, am I in or out, brings fear to people. This kind of thinking and worrying was underlying so much of the Jewish worldview at the time of Jesus. It's this type of fear that drove the Pharisees to be oppressive in their religious demands. The day of the Lord was supposed to be something God's people anticipated eagerly with joy. But for many, they knew their shortcomings. They knew they hadn't lived up to the standards of the Old Testament law. Consequently, they lived with guilt, fear, dread, and doubts. They were living with an underlying worry about their fate on the day of the Lord. A significant part of John the Baptist's ministry was helping people be ready for the day of the Lord helping them confidently turn from evil and sin and telling them to embrace godliness and righteousness so they could expect the day of the Lord with joy and not fear. John preached strong messages of repentance. He baptized people in water to show that they had embraced godliness. He taught people to prove in the way that they lived that they had truly repented. And with baptism and repentance, people found there was an exchange taking place. They were exchanging guilt for peace. They're exchanging fear with a joyful anticipation. They're exchanging dread for hope, doubts for an unshakable assurance, sorrow for comfort, shame for forgiveness. They were exchanging selfishness for concern for others. They went from worrying about their own fate on the day of the Lord to caring about the fate of others. And the first thing I'd invite you to write down if you're taking notes today is John's mission was to prepare people so they would be ready for what God was about to do. John's mission was to prepare people so they would be ready for what God was about to do. Ready for Jesus to usher in the day of the Lord with joy and hope, not fear and dread. Ready to live with God in the central place of their lives. Ready for God to truly be Lord and King. Large numbers of people were not ready. So God raised up a man to help prepare them to be ready. And how did John accomplish this? He preached the need for repentance. He baptized people and strongly told them to turn their lives around and leave sin behind. And most importantly, he pointed people to Jesus. 
And John saw thousands of people stop living in fear and intimidation of God and start living with a forgiving, gracious, compassionate Father as the foundation of their whole lives. Over the next few weeks in this series, we'll of course be talking a lot about John the Baptist, as you can guess, but it's important to remember that John's ministry was entirely about Jesus. The day of the Lord was initiated by Jesus 2,000 years ago, and he will complete what he started when he returns. When John was specifically placed in the Judean wilderness 2,000 years ago for that specific time and place to prepare the way for Jesus' earthly ministry, the need for people to passionately embrace God and find hope and assurance in Him rather than view Him with fear and dread, that reality then is still very, very real today. The second coming of Jesus, it'll continue to be a source of debate and speculation right up until the moment it happens. But just as it was important 2,000 years ago, we also should embrace the promise of hope and assurance that believers have about the Lord's return. All of this is helpful to have in mind as we begin this series, and especially today as we look at John the Baptist in the Old Testament. Now, this is a good bit of Bible trivia. If ever you end up in a Bible trivia competition and you win because this question, I do expect credit. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament around 300 times. And there's almost 300 chapters in the New Testament, which means that if you average it out, there's approximately one Old Testament quotation for every chapter of the New Testament. And there's a handful of times in the New Testament that they quote the Old Testament that teach us something about John the Baptist. There are three particular that we're gonna look at today in these three passages. They were written hundreds of years before John was born. And the gospel writers point to them to help us understand the significance of who John is and therefore the importance of his ministry. The first one we're going to look at is in Isaiah 40, starting verse 3. Listen, it's the voice of someone. This is the someone that we're talking about. Someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Fast forward a few hundred years, Malachi was writing, and we get this, Malachi 3. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. You can already see the similarities in what they're saying. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The next passage we're going to look at, these are the last verses in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, starting verse 5. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that is how the Old Testament ends. With those verses from Malachi, along with Isaiah and uh, Jewish tradition, the people were given the assurance that a great person was coming before the Messiah to prepare the way. We also read there about the severity of the day of the Lord. And it's easy to see that these verses don't give a lot of direct information. So we shouldn't be surprised that after a few hundred years, people started to fill in the blanks and speculate. We have the benefit, of course, of hindsight because we know these voices point to John the Baptist. This is all confirmed by all four gospel writers. All four gospel writers include all three of these verses in the gospels. These verses that were written hundreds of years earlier 
They knew that these prophecies have been fulfilled in John the Baptist. God promised to send someone, and that someone was John. From a surface reading of those passages, we can see that someone is going to come to declare that we need to prepare for God to arrive. He is going to do something amazing, and he's going to send a messenger to put everyone on high alert. There is clearly an anticipation that God is going to move in an astounding way. For the Old Testament people of God, he is going to send a unique messenger to help them prepare and be ready. And to help people understand the importance of this messenger, the Old Testament prophet Malachi points to Elijah. And we're definitely going to look at that more today. There are also promises in those verses. Promises that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And the Messiah that the Old Testament people were eagerly waiting for would finally come. And before that, the preaching of the messenger would turn the hearts of fathers and children. There's the promise that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it. And by responding to the messenger, we do not need to fear or dread the day of the Lord, but we can anticipate it with joy. This notion of preparation and getting ready is at the heart of these passages. It's the heart of these prophetic words that are given about John the Baptist. I'll repeat this again from Malachi 3. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Isaiah 40, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway, prepare a highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Get it ready, prepare because I'm going to do something amazing. It's worth pointing out that that passage from Isaiah is the passage that Reverend Martin Luther King spoke about on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during his world famous I Have a Dream speech. What a visual from the Bible. Make a straight highway by filling in valleys and leveling mountains. Uh, Megan and I, we've spent time living in the western part of the country. It's where Megan's originally from. And for a period of time, we lived in Helena, Montana, which sits right in the Rocky Mountains. We also lived in central Oregon. And while we lived in Oregon, we would often take uh, these drives. It was about three hours from where we lived to get to Portland. And to get to Portland from where we live, we'd have to drive through highways that went through mountain ranges and overpasses, and we did similar drives in Montana, of course. Now, it's beautiful to drive through a mountain range, but it does leave me astounded that people were able to build a highway through a mountain range. I mean, this week, to get ready for today, I, I looked it up, and the process of building a highway through a mountain range is extremely difficult, as you can imagine. There's incredible levels that go into this, incredible work that goes into this. The brilliance of people that are able to figure this out is unbelievably remarkable. There's careful surveying of the land to see the best places to build and do the highway. And I even saw that you can sort of have a plan, but once you get started on your plan, it can turn out that the road actually isn't good to accommodate a road, so you have to change plan again and sort of go to a plan B or a plan C. There's blasting that needs to happen with dynamite. And then once you've done that, you have to clear the debris and you have to get down a bunch of trees and then you have to get the tree stumps out. And the work that goes into it is absolutely unbelievable. Smoothing out a highway is a massive undertaking. Just getting the supplies to do the construction work to a mountain range is unbelievably difficult to figure out. And all of this is with modern equipment and technology. A few thousand years ago, I didn't even know how they would figure this stuff out. The roads that the ancient people would travel on, they were uh, mostly unpaved, but they needed to be able to support wheeled transportation like wagons or caravans. The roads needed to be leveled and cleared of blockades. They needed to be constantly maintained. And here in Isaiah, we see, I would say, an exaggerated call, not just to clear the road of blockages or obstacles, not just to level out an unstable stretch of the desert, but there's a call to flatten mountains. 
There's a call to fill in entire valleys. Now, this is clearly a poetic way that Isaiah is letting us know the significance of what's happening here. It's basically saying, to put it in central New York terms, don't shovel the snow off the driveway. Get some dynamite, blow up the driveway, and build a chairlift. And all of this, this massive undertaking, is in the name of preparation. The weight and vastness of the preparation speaks to the significance of what's to come. And what's the preparation for? Well, from spending time weighing up all of this this week, there's three obvious things that the Old Testament tells us by John the Baptist, things that he will accomplish through his faithful preparation as he helps people no longer live afraid of God or dreading the day of the Lord. Three things that I think are helpful for us today. We can see God moving in preparation through John's ministry in a way that fulfills what Isaiah and Malachi were prophesying about. And these three steps of preparation, I believe they're easy to see, and they're easy to see how it's relevant for our life of faith today. Are we ready for three things? All right. How did John the Baptist prepare people for Jesus? Number one, prepared them to listen. How did John prepare people for Jesus? Prepared them to listen. Now, the ancient role of a messenger is something we really don't have a a comprehension of today. In the ancient world, the messengers and heralds were vitally important in military or political life. What's accomplished by phone or email or any number of communication methods today was a responsibility that the messengers thousands of years ago would have. They were the primary means of sharing important information, and consequently, it was a high-pressure and important responsibility. If you have some time on your hands this afternoon, just Google the history of the marathon, and you will read a great story about a messenger. And John had a good message. He had a good message that God was clearing the way in the wilderness, not just so that God could travel victoriously, but his people could travel victoriously with him too. John's message was strong and confrontational, but it was filled with hope and promise. God used John to prepare people to hear his message. And it's amazing how often we can hear something, but it doesn't register, it doesn't quite click. To prepare the way as Isaiah wrote, it means very literally clearing obstructions, debris, and blockades to make the path or highway clear as an ease of travel. Likewise, we need to remove the obstacles to the message. Very often, messages don't get heard because there's a lack of preparation. In a book I'm reading right now called Made to Stick, it tells a story that the United States Department of Agriculture recommends that a normal diet contains no more than 20 grams of saturated fat each day. According to lab results, the typical bag of movie popcorn had 37 grams of fat in the 1990s. A single serving of movie theater popcorn had nearly two days' worth of saturated fat. The challenge was that few people know what 37 grams of saturated fat means. Most of us don't memorize the USDA's daily nutrition recommendations. Is 37 grams good or bad? The facts weren't being heard until they changed how they were communicating. Here's the new message. A medium-sized butter popcorn at a typical neighborhood movie theater contains more artery-clogging fat than bacon and eggs for breakfast, a Big Mac and fries for lunch, and a steak dinner with all the trimmings combined. That message stuck. And movie theaters around the country were pressured by the public to change what oil they used in their popcorn. In the same book, 
It talks about anti-smoking campaigns. How many of you ever sat in a classroom and some medical professionals told you the horrors of smoking? Yeah, we don't just do it in England, right? Okay. And they found that, you know, these professionals would come in, whether it was a, a doctor or a nurse or somebody, you know, that's qualified to speak about, you know, the terrible damage that smoking does to your body, and they give this speech to kids. They found it had minimal effects. They switched up the messaging, and instead of talking about the personal damage and the health implications of smoking, they would go in and they would tell these almost conspiracy theories about how evil tobacco companies were, about how they were shady, and they did false advertising, and they were bribing politicians, and the kids latched onto that, and we've got to stick it to those guys. That's all registered. Make of that what you will. But that's a good indication and a good illustration of what it means to be prepared to listen. Clear the blockages. Listen to something differently. Connecting to something differently than we have before. We can rattle off the facts about how bad popcorn is. Doesn't mean the message sticks. We can rattle off the health data about how bad smoking is for you. Doesn't mean it sticks. Remove the blockages so that the message connects. Every believer has a call to make a positive difference and to share the gospel with people. To prepare people to listen to the most important message the world will ever hear. God is preparing the hearts of the listeners. And God is preparing the messenger with the words to say. To be effective in people hearing the most important message the world will ever know. God is preparing the hearts of people to listen, and he is preparing the messengers with the right words to say. The challenge is not whether we're willing to get over ourselves and become crazy Bible thumpers at work, but rather, how can we share our faith in a way that connects with the people we care about? It's praying for God to prepare the hearts of people we interact with and to give us the words that will mean something to people. Over the years, I have shared my faith in remarkably ineffective ways. I remember as a young person in my 20s, I tried to connect to these teenage boys that had visited the church event my church was throwing in the UK. I told my story about how God had changed my life, and I poured my heart out, only for them to laugh out loud, a literal LOL. In hindsight, I was so cheesy and corny, I deserved to be laughed at. Other times, I found myself arguing with people about the merit and validity of my faith claims. But I didn't want to argue, I wanted them to see the love of God. I've assumed that one effective way of sharing my faith with someone is good for everyone. I've decided that I just need to dig my heels in and prove my moral superiority, and that has never gone well. After this week, I'm preparing for this message, I believe more than ever, I need to value the preparation more than I ever have before, that I need to value God working in people's hearts to prepare them and I need to value God preparing me with the words to say they're going to truly connect with people. John was, of course, a very effective preacher. Jesus would go on to become the greatest teacher the world will ever know. And Jesus' followers have been teaching and preaching and declaring the life changes of message of Jesus ever since. This verse from Romans talks about the importance of sharing this message. Romans 10, starting in verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. 
Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they've never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him, come on somebody, unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the Scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Let's commit to pray for God to both prepare people's hearts and prepare us with the words to say. From the Old Testament passages we read, we see Malachi point to Elijah to help us understand the ministry of John the Gospel, and for what it's worth, Elijah is a great name for an oldest son. The promise of Elijah, it's his birthday tomorrow, by the way. The promise of Elijah coming, it causes much conversation within the Gospels. Jesus assures the disciples that John is indeed fulfilling that promise of Elijah. And here's what we read in Malachi 4 a moment ago. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And this is what John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, said at the moment he was born. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Now, if this wasn't blunt enough, there's also some subtle references in 2 Kings talking about Elijah. So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. One day I hope my son is described as a hairy man wearing a leather belt. But John the Baptist described this way in Matthew 3. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, for he ate locusts and wild honey. Now Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, one of the standout things from his ministry is that he was constantly involved in the miraculous. Some of the things that Elijah was a part of is that he caused the rain to cease for three and a half years in Israel. He made flour and oil last a supernaturally long time so the provision of food didn't run out. He prayed for the resurrection of a widow's son. He called fire from heaven on the altar on Mount Carmel. After praying for it not to rain, he then prayed for it to rain, and it did. There were two times where he called fire from heaven upon 50 soldiers that were coming against him. He parted the river Jordan so he could pass through it. Now John, even though he has a miraculous birth that we'll cover more next week, he himself has never been recorded as being operating in the miraculous. Strangely enough, John is not recorded as being a part of miracles. So if John is operating in the same way as Elijah, but unlike Elijah, he's not operating in the miraculous, where's the similarity? Looking at a well-known moment from the life of Elijah, I think will give us some insight. And it's the contest on Mount Carmel. At this point where Elijah was alive and ministering, it was a significant low point in Israel's history. The nation as a whole had largely abandoned God and had pursued the pagan gods and idols of the surrounding areas, and King Ahab was permitting all of it. So Elijah boldly goes and confronts King Ahab and lays down a challenge. So they meet at Mount Carmel with Elijah, King Ahab, and all the priests and prophet of the pagan god Baal. And while there, Elijah says this, Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Following this, Elijah says that they'll take turns in putting a sacrifice on an altar, and whoever can pray for their God to send fire to burn up the offering, that's the true God. And after the prophets of Baal spend all day calling out to Baal, while Elijah stands by even mocking them, nothing happens. And after the prophets of Baal concede and give Elijah his turn, Elijah then dramatically soaks his offering in water and dumps a bunch of water on the altar and to, just to make a real spectacle out of things. And then prays a very simple prayer, and God instantly sends fire to burn up the offering. It's a powerful visual of God's sovereign power. This is most likely the most famous moment in Elijah's ministry. But John wasn't involved directly in miracles. He didn't call down fire from heaven on the altar. But let's read that verse from uh, number 21 again. Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people were completely silent. How did John the Baptist prepare people for Jesus? Number two, he prepared them to choose. Elijah stands up in this deeply confrontational moment and says, if you believe that God is God, what are you doing messing around? Why aren't you doing this wholeheartedly? Why aren't you following God with everything? If you think this Baal nonsense is for real, then go do it. But if you believe that the Lord your God, the one that delivered your ancestors out of slavery in Egypt and delivered you into this land and made promises with you and covenants with you, if you believe that God is God, don't play games. Choose. John the Baptist operated in that if one person claps, we all have to. Elijah was a prophet And in the same way that he would prepare people to choose, consider that that intensity from Elijah. And keep this in mind as we read this from something from the life of John the Baptist. This is Luke 3, starting halfway through verse 2. At this time, a message from God came to John, the son of Zechariah, John the Baptist, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching the people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, Here's a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we are safe, for we are the descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do, asked some soldiers. Don replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. Now that's intense. It's giving people a choice. This is something that Jesus continued later on in Luke's gospel, chapter 11. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. An important role of John the Baptist was to help prepare people so they could make a choice. And this is something that he had in common with Elijah. Just as Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and said, if you believe God is for real, if you believe that the God of your ancestors is the one true God, why are we playing these games? Why, are you do- why is your faith just flirting with God? Come on, let's follow him. Make a choice. In that same way, John the Baptist raised up and said, if you believe God is for real, stop ripping people off. Care about the poor. Care about your living. Care about the choices you make. But choose God. Choose godliness. He put a choice in front of people. And as we've read, people responded. This is a responsibility that putting a choice in front of people is a responsibility that we see for all of the Old Testament prophets. And after being ready to listen and ready to choose, there's a third way that John the Baptist prepared people. How did John the Baptist prepare people for Jesus? Third thing, prepared them to change. Prepared them to change. Malachi, going back to verse four, remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now there's a way of reading this literally, that the mission of John the Baptist will be to restore broken families. Malachi speaks about fathers and children, children and fathers, and the urgency of repairing families has always been true. But I'm inclined to read this with more of a poetic approach. And I'm gonna ask you to think about what generations represent. Fathers represent the past. Children represent the future. In the passage we just read, we're we're told to remember Moses. And in verse four, it says remember, but in verse five, it says to anticipate Elijah. Fathers, the past, what has gone before us, and children, what is to come. The repentance that John called people to, it, it wasn't an apology, it was a total life change. And this happens by having our hearts turned and finding trust in how God has already revealed himself. God has shown himself to be holy and righteous and powerful. He has made promises and revealed to us who he is. He has constantly shown himself to be merciful and gracious. He has moved throughout history to bring about his plans and purposes. That is the message of those that have gone before us. That is the testimony of generations past. Children turning their hearts to their fathers is a call for this generation, for us to return to what God has revealed to the generations that have gone before us. That he is good, that he is worthy, that obedience to him is the right thing to do, that sin ruins people's lives, that following God with all our hearts is the only way to live. Right now I'm uh, reading through uh, the book of Chronicles 
And one of the things that you'll see if you're reading through particularly Second Chronicles is that there's uh, a series of kings, and oftentimes they come in quick succession, and it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. It's like a yo-yo. And I read this week about Uzziah. He started as a good king, but then went bad. His son Jotham was a good king. His son Ahaz, bad king. His son Hezekiah, good king, one of the best. His son Manasseh, bad king, one of the worst. This up and down, up and down. The call to turn our hearts towards our fathers is a call to embrace what generations before us has known. It's a call for these bad kings to turn their hearts and embrace what their fathers knew. There's a second part to this. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. There's a call to look ahead. There's a call to look at what is coming. Faith in Jesus is not antiquated and old-fashioned. It's not outdated or irrelevant. It's a call to honor and embrace the past, but also to look ahead with great anticipation and hope for the future. This messenger who God is going to send to prepare the way, who we now know is John the Baptist, is not going to come and simply tell people to repent and embrace the past. He is also not going to say, forget the past, forget what's already happened, forget what God has already done, just look ahead for the new things. But rather, it is embrace the past, what God has done, how He has proven Himself, and be filled with anticipation about all that's to come. I have um, possibly the world's worst illustration for this. Without Alexander Graham Bell, you don't have an iPhone. Without the Wright brothers, you don't have the moon landing. Without cricket, you don't have baseball. Embrace the past. Embrace how God has moved. Embrace how God has revealed himself and be filled with expectation for the future. This will bring true gospel transformation and change. The past is neither something to be rejected nor something to idolize. Embracing the past though, all the ways that God has revealed himself, all the promises that have been made and kept, all the lessons that we can learn, all the warnings and wisdom that his unchanging character and majesty is proven eternally true, embrace all of it. And at the same time, be filled with hope and optimism that God is still moving. He is working in new and powerful ways, that his plans are still unfolding, that the church's brightest days are ahead, that his kingdom is still being established and lives are being completely transformed by the power of the gospel. By having our hearts turned towards all of this, it will drive our day-to-day lives. If we embrace this, it will transform our day-to-day lives. It will shape our conduct and our relationships. There's been a number of times I've shared with the church that the true meaning of repentance is not simply saying, I'm sorry, but it's true change of heart. It's a true change of mind. And that change shows itself in how we live, the way we make decisions, the way we prioritize, where we draw our values from. Malachi 4.6 again. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Elijah represented the Old Testament prophets. Some have described John the Baptist as the last of the Old Covenant uh, prophets. Everything John said and did was to point ahead to something new, something deeply transformative and unique. Matthew 9. One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Why don't your disciples fast like we would expect them to do traditionally? 
Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the old wineskins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. God is doing new things. And by honoring all that has gone before us and being full of faith and hope for what's ahead, it drives our day-to-day lives. It changes how we live. By no longer being afraid of God's judgment or justice because of the cross, we can live a life of purpose as we choose to follow Jesus and not anything else. How did John the Baptist prepare people for Jesus? Prepared them to listen. Prepared them to choose. Prepared them to change. John the Baptist faithfully pointed people to Jesus. And that's a call every follower of Jesus carries. To be effective, we need God to prepare people to listen. And we need God to prepare us with the words to say. This changes what we pray for people. That God would not only prepare them, but also prepare us. And when we make a choice, make a choice to follow Jesus above everything else, we trust that God has prepared us to understand with a clear mind what matters most so that we can choose Him and His kingdom no matter where life takes us. With God's preparation, we can have a renewed sense of values and priorities. The way we make choices and the way we navigate life can be different. When we're faced with temptation or we find ourselves at a crossroads, we can confidently choose Jesus. And all of this will change our whole lives. Every believer's faith affects every area of their life. Embracing all that God has done in the past and full of faith and confidence that He is still moving and He's still unfolding His plans and that the worldwide church's days, the best ones are still to come. That changes everything. God sent John to prepare the way and God is continuing to prepare the people so people can have their lives transformed by the message of Jesus. And God has committed to keep preparing and to keep changing lives, changing eternities until He returns on the day of the Lord. Prepared to listen, prepared to choose, and prepared to change. I have a few questions for you if you're in the habit of taking notes. I encourage you to write this down. If you're not in the habit of taking notes, great day to start. Question for you, something to think about this week. How have you seen God's preparation in your life? How have you seen this preparation, whether it's to listen or whether it's to choose or whether it's to change? Where have you seen this preparation at work in your life? How have you seen this preparation get you to the point where you're no longer afraid of God, but rather full of hope and optimism about the future? Second question, when was the last time you changed something because of your faith? The preparation that John was a part of led to change. We've read today that John was adamant that his preaching causes change in the lives of people. And even though you have never encountered John the Baptist, the ministry he was a part of still matters. So it's worthwhile to ask ourselves, when was the last time you changed something because of your faith? Because none of us have reached perfection. I read a portion from Romans 10 earlier. I want to read another couple of verses from that again. Is Romans 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. 
this is a very succinct couple of verses that really hammer home the message of Jesus. If you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, if you believe He loves you so much, that God loves you so much that He would see the brokenness in the world around us and He would say, I'm going to take responsibility and fix this up. I'm going to fix this up by sending my Son to become humanity, to pay the price. Humanity cannot pay itself. And God's Son came 2,000 years ago, would grow up, become a man, live a perfect life, would teach a better way about the kingdom of God. And then we'll go to the cross. And on the cross, he would take on the sin of the world, every mistake everyone has ever made, every problem that causes sin, every root of sin, every problem, everything ever. Take it upon himself. And as the perfect sacrifice would pay the price that you and I, we could never begin to start repaying. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death once and for all. So that all, as we just read, that believe in him can know life. We can be saved. We can know his goodness. We can know what it's like to live in a healed and whole relationship with God, both here on earth and confident about our eternity with him. That's the message of Jesus. And before we close today, I want to give opportunity to anyone here and you have never made that decision to follow Jesus. You have never responded. You have never vocalized. You have never said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give you that chance today. So if you wouldn't mind everyone here just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, it's just to give some discretion to the people around you. It's just so that we can focus on what matters most right now. And if you'll be honest and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following Jesus, but I'm ready to start. I want to start following Jesus. I'm ready to start embracing this life that God has promised to me. I'm ready. I don't want to be afraid of God anymore. I don't want to be afraid of what's coming in the end of, end of time. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know what it's like to be saved. I want to have a healed relationship with God. If that's you today, would you just put your hand up? I promise I won't embarrass you, but I want to know who I'm praying for today. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Anyone else here? I give you my word. I won't embarrass you. Wonderful. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? We're going to pray a prayer in a moment. And I want to know if you're included. If that's you today, just pop your hand up just for a moment. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Amen. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with those people making the best decision today. Amen. Amen. Well, there's going to be words on the screen right now, and it's a prayer that we do at the end of every service. And I want to ask everyone here to pray this along. And if you're one of those people that put your hand up, I want you to pray this believing that this is a life-changing moment for you. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate with people one more time. Amen.